Welcome to the Next Step Business Podcast. I'm Bob Camp, your host. For each podcast, I'm inviting successful business leaders to discuss strategy, execution, high-performing teams, innovation, and more. Join us to learn more about getting the business you want and living life on your terms. I'd like to uh, welcome Bob Webb. I've known Bob for uh, several years. One of the first people I met when I came to Knoxville. And I've known him through Robert L. Webb and Associates and in another organization called uh, Blue River Partners. But Bob has his fingers in, in quite a few things or several things, maybe is a better term. Bob, could you explain a bit more about what you do? Sure. Glad to, Bob. Good to be with you today. Yeah, I have Robert L. Webb and Associates. Uh, I think this is 14, 15 years that I've had that company. Started it. Frustrated corporate guy for many years, 20 plus years. Really felt I wanted to go out on my own. Had accomplished everything I that I could in the corporate world. So I, I started a company and really started off doing consulting and made a pretty quick pivot to say I really want to to help family businesses. I really don't want to be a consultant. I want to be uh, a manager, a mentor, uh, somebody that helps businesses that are either in trouble and need to be turned around or they're stable and they want to grow. And even though that seems like a different skill set, it's really not. It's just applied a little bit differently. And so along the way, I met a lot of neat people in that journey. Bob Kemp being one of them, Mike Akers being an old friend who passed away a few years ago. He and I started Blue River Partners to bring sort of like-minded professionals together. Mike's vision was that we would be like emergency room doctors, looking at a patient, looking at a company, trying to bring different skill sets and different expertise to them. And so we've done that. It's now a vehicle where we can make equity investments through. Sometimes we're able to do that with companies that, that need that or want that. It's desirable for us and them too. And I also have a partnership with some guys called 6-8 Ventures. comes from the biblical verse, Micah 6-8. And we have a couple of companies over in uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee now, a machine shop and an e-commerce business. And we're looking to make other investments in the Knoxville, Nashville, Chattanooga Triangle area. But my uh, management practice in Robert L. Webb and Associates spans the country. Uh, I've got several people working with me now full-time, some on a part-time or project basis. So it's really developed over the years. We have a lot of fun. We need to get to meet a lot of neat people across the country. And we work for private equity firms, family businesses, nonprofits even, uh, a pretty wide spectrum, technology companies. So we enjoy what we do. We think we have a positive impact. And uh, we really get to meet a lot of neat people and help them on their journey. And that's a big thrill for us. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's one of the things that, you know, and, and so in full transparency, I've, I've done some projects with Bob. And that is part of the, the thrill is helping people and helping good people. So one of the things I was going to ask you, Bob, is what makes you you, the way you came up, influences that you had, because you're willing to step into the fire and do the things that are hard to do sometimes and have the conversations that are hard to have. But you do it with a at least from my perspective, you do it with this, your, your intention is to help the other person or to help that company. I've seen CFOs typically come into the company and say the first thing that you need to do is cut people, but that's not your approach. You come in and really try to figure out what's the lever that you can pull to help them get out of where they're at. Um, well, that's true. We do like to go into companies, and, and we've always believed the most valuable asset that any company has are its people. And affecting people negatively is, is our last lever that we pull. Uh, it's something we don't like to do. We don't want to do that. 
We believe if we get the right people in the right seats and get them motivated properly, that they're going to help carry that company to a better future. We look at all the other things in the business that we can do. What's our cash management strategy? What kind of customers? What kind of markets? What are we doing wrong internally? Is our pricing strategy right? Are we serving the right customers? Are we doing it in the right way? We look at all those things first. And usually if we can figure those out, find the two or three constraints that we can relieve, then we end up hiring people, not letting them go. And, that, and that's a big positive, and that's one of the things that we try to do. But you're right, my background goes back over 200 years in East Tennessee. Our family's been here for 12 or 13 generations. They're mostly farmers, didn't have much of a lifestyle, just worked hard all the time for not a little at the end of the year, at the end of the when the crop came in. Uh, and the crops didn't always come in. They had that situation. So I got a lot of that from my dad and my grandfather that they used to tell me, nobody, nobody owes you anything. You owe somebody something. Uh, you need to work hard. You need to prove your worth. And then when things work out, you get paid or you get a reward. But the hard work and the effort comes first. And there's you don't deserve anything except what you work for. So I had that mental thought in my head a lot and background. So, yeah, it is more of a service to people and their companies and help them. And then our reward comes later. So that's a, a overall philosophy or guiding light that we use. And in doing that, we find that people end up helping us a lot along the way, that, that we get it back tenfold for what we put into people and their lives and their businesses and their families. So that's just a huge thrill for us. I do a lot of mentoring of younger people. Now that I've gotten older, I mentor the young people. I always think of myself as the youngest guy in the room. That went away about 30 years ago. Now I'm the oldest guy in the room. But with age comes experience, and you're able to pass on some things that I learned the hard way. And it makes it a little bit easier on their journey. And one of my big thrills is seeing somebody develop and we unleash their potential. And sometimes the company, sometimes the owners and the managers don't realize that they have diamonds in the rough. And We just have to reposition them and help them and, and even help the owners see the potential in their own people because they see them every day. We don't. We come in with no, no baggage. We get to see people for who they are and say, this person has a lot of potential. If we put them in this slot, and give them this instruction and training. So that's something that, that really motivates us to find those people in the organization that can really just unleash the talent and really help the company grow and improve. That's really uh, you, several things there to, to go back to. But the, the last one to start with, this element of putting people in the right seats, I hear that a lot, but a lot of people don't really, to your point, without the baggage or the biases, don't know how to really do that. And and. One of the people I talked to recently brought that up, and, and what he said was really impactful. He says, I saw two people helping each other. One was doing the other person's job, and the other was doing the other person's job, so I just switched them, and all of a sudden, <laughs> things were better. That's exactly right. That happens. I'm working with a client now, and they said, we want you to mentor this person. This We think she has potential, but we're not sure. We're not sure. We can't put our finger on it. She's very shy. She's very reserved. We think she's maybe just not even engaged with what's going on. I met with her a couple of times and realized she was great on content. She understood the job, but she didn't really know how to communicate what she knew to the organization. So I found out that she's really good one-on-one -on -one and she's really good at making presentations. So I said, let's put that together. Let's make some presentations on some topics that the company needs to understand better. And let's put you in a small group. You're really good one-on-one. -on -one. How about one-on-three, one-on-five? And so she just thrilled with that. 
And people are like amazed at the communication she has now. It was just a matter of recognizing what's her strength and let's play to that strength. You know, she's not going to lecture 500 people about something, but in a small group with a 12 slide presentation that tries to make three points, she's excellent at that. So we just carve up what she needs to do into small segments. She does a couple of those a week. And, and now the CEO and the COO are like, where did she come from? Well, she was there all along. You know, they just had, we just had to unlock what was there. So that's, that's exciting for us. It, it, I, I like that you're bringing that because one of the, when I think about business, I think about primarily three pillars. And, and one is we have to monetize the markets. We've got to figure out how to grow the business and grow up profitably. And, and you said it earlier, are we chasing the right companies? Do we have our pricing models correct? And, and pricing models are both, are we, you know, is the pricing high enough to, to make money? But also on the other side, are we pricing it so high that we can't win clients? It's finding that right place. And I know that you do that in, in detail, but it is, you know, monetizing markets. The, the, the second is, you know, developing the organization. It's optimizing the organization. It's getting the right people in the right seats, doing the right things, building processes that are effective and efficient and going through that process. But the third is, and I know you get involved with this too, is in the space of innovation. And innovation isn't just about new product development. It's about and, you know, what you're doing there. It's innovative sometimes just to recognize someone's talents and helping develop those talents in a different way than you perceived them to be before. Yes, and, and when you're in the daily fire, and, and you and I have both been there and many clients and when we were W-2 employees as well, it's an old cliche, but it's hard to see the forest for the trees. People look at individuals in their organization and say, well, that person's just in accounting, or that person's just in sales, or that person's just in engineering, realizing that people are three-dimensional, and they have talents and skills. They're just having to use them in one area at a time. And we, we try to get people out of these silos. We try to get them talking to each other. And sometimes the accounting people have some very unique insights into the entire business that nobody's just listened to. Or the marketing people know a lot about the cost structure. They understand from customers what the customer needs. What you know? Are we adding more value? Are we adding value that we're not charging for? You know, they understand that in a unique way. So getting all these people together and focusing on how do we improve this business and not pigeonholing them into one area or one expertise really helps a lot. And, and people like to get out of their areas. We just don't let them out. We don't let them out of that cage often enough. But when we do, we find these things that, wow, I didn't know they had that insight. That's, we can run with that. That's something we can explore. And then the people get excited. They get excited when they work with each other more and they learn about the other parts of the business and they can apply their knowledge better. That's where growth comes from. A lot of growth is just one or two small ideas that we're able to go and develop. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and that's asking people what they know or what they don't know or what they're interested in, just all these different things. Just asking the questions makes a big difference. And I went through many years ago when I was back in the corporate world, I went through diversity training, which for our executive team, and there was a scenario where different people, I won't say different, but different, lack of better terms, different caricatures, right, were presented to us about different people in different situations. And we were asked what jobs might be best for them. And everybody's going through this process of, to your point, 
this is a good, this could be a good salesperson. This could be a good help desk person. This could be a good whatever and, and laid out. And, you know, what jobs might be best for them. And we're all going through this process. This is executives in, in a pretty decent sized business. And the guy with the training says, when we get done, he goes, did you ever, did you think about asking the individuals? And it was like, <laughs> you know, we didn't really, really and, and so it's really important to ask those questions because you don't know the talent that you have or the ideas that they have. Because some of the best ideas that come up are from the people outside of sales. As an example, if, if I were managing sales, some of the best ideas might come up from the people in the supply chain or support sales or in finance or, or different areas of the organization because they see something with a less bias or less habit. And uh, yeah, that whole questioning process, I think, is, is so valuable. I want to bring back, you said something earlier and it implied patience. And you have both the sense of urgency and patience. And I wanted to you know, see if you could expand on that a little bit, because I know when we got involved with doing a turnaround or doing something, time is of the essence. You have to move quickly. And but it's also, as you said, being patient to understand what's the best place to go. Right. Where do we start? And, and that takes a little bit of time just to go in and dig into it versus going in and just saying, oh, let's just do this based upon our experience. There's what is the best thing to be doing first? So there's some patience there, but it's also patience with the people without losing a sense of urgency. So the patience, can you explain a bit more your thoughts around that? Sure. And it's a tough balance, and I've often gotten it wrong. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> people say, Webb, you, you seem to know a lot. I say, it's because I've done everything wrong at least once, but I tried to <laughs> learn from it. I tried to learn quickly. But, yes, we do have a sense of urgency. There's a difference between important and urgent. And we try to separate those things. A lot of times in a business, cash flow is an urgency, and we have to write the cash flow pretty quick. We go in and try to look at those things and say, okay, what can we negotiate with customers? What can we negotiate with vendors? And we always make it a negotiation. We're always saying to people, if something's urgent for us, what can we do to help you better? And here's what you can do to help us better. And we try to find that. We found open conversation with customers and vendors on urgent matters actually speeds through the process. We try not to be demanding, but we try to just lay our cards on the table and say, here's the problem we're having. We want to help you. We want you to help us. And let's find that mutual ground that we can go on. We found that to be pretty perceptive. Uh, be, people are receptive to that. Um, so we try to rank things and say, okay, what, what do we need? What's important that we need to be working on midterm, long-term? What's urgent that we have to start to get some results sooner than later? But you, you made a good point about patience with people. People are slower to change, so we have to be patient with the people. But we try to be very open and honest with them and say, look, here's our 30, 60-day, 90-day thoughts. Here's what we need to try to accomplish. We need your help in doing that. And by the way, we think if we put you in this seat during this time period, you're going to excel because you have the skills and abilities to do that seat better. And that helps bring them along faster when they think you're working in their best interest, we tell people at the beginning, our intent is not to terminate anybody. Our intent is not to lay anybody off. Our intent is to maximize your potential, but we need your help. We need your help, and here are the things that we need to try to accomplish, 
And the quicker we can accomplish these things, the quicker we can stop talking about negative actions that might have to happen. And we don't threaten people. There's not a need to do that. But we find just openly communicating what the situation is, they then get a sense of urgency on their own. So we don't have to push that urgency down. We have to just pull it out of them. Because most people, at the end of the day, they want to do a good job. They want to be appreciated. They want to go home to their families and go to the soccer games and basketball games and ballet recitals. And we want them to be able to do those things. We want them to be able to balance individuals. But they'll have a sense of urgency when they understand. I think a lot of companies and CEOs tend to have too many secrets, not be as transparent. And we just say, hey, we're open book. What is what you get? We don't have anything to hide. We're not going to publish a confidential salary list. We're not going to be crazy things like that. But we're going to be open about the business. We're going to be open about the opportunities. We're going to be open about the problems. And that helps create a sense of urgency in people that they follow. You know, and that's, and sometimes I just talked to an individual yesterday who had left an organization because it was going through some rapid change and it was very uncomfortable for him. But he'd been gone for two years. And he, he made the comment, he says, I, he says, have you talked to them recently? And I had. And he says, I understand some really good things are happening there. And I, I said, yeah. I said, and I gave him my perspective on it. And, we, and so we, we had a nice discussion about that. He said, but man, the people really had a hard time with all that happening. And it comes back to that element you were saying. Change is difficult. And it's reason it's you know, so important to have that guidance and but also as you were saying earlier, this element of going in and when you put someone into a role where you really think they're going to do better is to reinforce your your confidence in them. And so- we got a real compliment the other day from a client. Um, the person that we're working with said, we, we didn't know what you guys were going to be like when you first got here. We're a little bit antsy. You look like consultants. And we have always have had a negative experience with consultants. I said, we don't use that word. But she said, when you all came in, You actually did something with us. You didn't tell us what to do. You went with us side by side, and maybe you had to be out front a little bit and leading us, but that's something we're not used to. We're not used to people coming in and and working with us. We're used to people coming in and telling us what to do and that we're crazy and we're doing this wrong and everything. I said, we've been crazy, and we've done those things wrong. So there's no use telling you. We're just going to help you go through it faster. That's all. So we thought that was a real compliment that we were working side by side with them and not just telling them what to do. Yeah, and that's an important piece as a manager or as a business owner is when you remove yourself from your leadership team and your leadership team then removes themselves from their their organizations, the more you remove yourself, especially through change, the harder it is for everyone else to see and, and to know if they're contributing or not and or being appreciated. With uh, what I wanted to ask about, because I've seen you do this, going down this path of, when you're working with organizations, you're looking at process improvement and different things, but 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 we probably won't have time to get into the process because that, that's a whole discussion in itself. But metrics, you're a firm believer, I'm a firm believer in metrics, Oftentimes, we'll go into organizations and the measures that they're using aren't productive. And it's a matter of trying to find those measures that, the number one, the data, uh, to find the right data or to be able to uncover the data 
that allows you to identify, okay, now these are the things that we need to measure or these are the things that make a difference. But there are some things. You brought up cash flow earlier. There are some key metrics that every business owner needs to have their fingers on. It's hard to find the data underneath it, but can you go first with kind of the key metrics that that you think are critical and then how you might go about finding the right measures for a company? Sure. One one of the things that that I'm a big believer in, have been for a number of years, is a concept called contribution margin. And that's something that we teach and preach all the time. And some we've run into a few companies that understand what that is. Some sort of understand it intuitively, but their accounting and financial systems don't bring that out. I tell people all the time, financial statements are designed for people outside the company. That's what they originated for. They were for bankers and investors. They're not really designed to help you operate the business on a day-to-day basis. And many owners get frustrated with that because they're expecting this information to help them in a way it was never designed to help. So one of the things we do is try to design some reporting. We don't start from scratch. We just try to do some analysis and say, here are the key metrics and the key factors in your business. Contribution margin is one of them. What's the amount of margin or profit that I'm going to make on the next dollar of revenue? That's pretty critical to know that because it tells me, can I increase my price? Do I need to decrease my price in certain markets? And when I sell something for a dollar, that next sale may bring in 75 cents because so many people in accounting or finance get hung up with allocations of overhead and those kinds of things that aren't really critical to the day-to-day measurement of the business. So we try to separate that noise out and say, okay, here's what you're going to get on the next dollar. That's a contribution margin. That's where you make a lot of your decisions from. Cash flow is very important. If companies aren't highly profitable or highly generating a lot of cash, and profitability and cash, of course, can be different due to AR and AP and, and capital expenditures, But we try to set people up on a 13-week cash flow, which is an old banking measurement. But every company that I've done that with says, we wish we'd done this a long time ago because now we can see three months into the future much better than we could before. We're not just guessing. We've got some data. It's not 100% accurate, but it's what we call directionally correct. And we can start to see if we take action today, that's going to impact in 30 or 45 days, and that makes a big difference. We also use EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. The true profitability measurement of the company and the true cash flow generating ability of the company. So those three things we really pay a lot of attention to. I've seen companies have 50 or 60 metrics that they look at every month. Realistically, there's a half a dozen that you can control on a month-to-month basis. Some of those are more valuable for long-term and trends and annual But if you've got your pulse on your backlog, your order flow, your pipeline, your cash flow, your EBITDA, your contribution margin, five or six measurements like that, that's what you're going to make decisions from day to day. And that's what we concentrate on. Let's make the short decisions right every day. And then we start looking at month and quarter and annual and and forecasting beyond that. But those are some of the measurements we like to look at. Like you say, they're a podcast all to their own each one of those, but that's some of the things that we think are critical day-to-day. Yeah, I greatly appreciate it. And and until I met you, I'd never heard the term contribution margin. And even though I was probably 25, 26 years old, I was managing a service shop for a manufacturer. We did service manufacturing services. So we manufactured products and we serviced them in the manufacturing plants. But It was really my first turnaround was that office. I never thought about it that way. We were in a tough economy, 
And I remember sitting down with those 13 column green bar sheets <laughs> with a, a pencil and an eraser and a calculator and trying to figure out how to improve profitability. Cause my boss had called me and said, you know, I'll fake his, his voice or Bob, you're going to have to get your revenue up or we're going to have to fire somebody. And, of course, revenue meant profits from right. his perspective because we had sure. to get revenue up to make a profit. And, yeah, I won't go into the whole story, but I, I went through this process. And, and what I found was we could do weekend maintenance in a plant. I could pay some people overtime, still charge my hourly rate, my standard hourly rate to be competitive, but because my benefits were already paid for, my equipment was already paid for, my office was already paid for, my overhead was already paid for, I made more money. And, and not working my people to death, we, we, we did the right things and just broke it up across people. But doing that, because it was also we were selling parts, we were doing other things, all that was contribution. Well, the impact on EBITDA was significant. It, was, it, it made the difference. We went from being one of the bottom offices in the country to one of the better offices in the country. And it was counterintuitive because most people look at the cost and say, I don't want to pay overtime. That's going to be 50% more per hour. But it was actually more profitable to do it that way because, like you said, all these other costs were behind you. Mm -hmm. So that's a great example of a counterintuitive strategy that was a little bit innovative but worked for the customer and worked for the for your company. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those that's the kind of out-of-the-box thinking we try to get people to start thinking about. I had someone the other day call me the father of contribution margin. I said, I didn't invent it, but I am a disciple. So that, that was unique. And a lot of the younger people today don't remember those green bar worksheets that we all did. But that's entirely what Excel was built from. It's just automated. The, 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 man, the green sheets were the manual Excel of our day when we first started. Oh, they were. You know, I couldn't add very well and foot and cross foot. And you spend a lot of your time doing that, that Excel does for you. So you're able to concentrate on the important parts. But yeah, it's, it's amazing. Our technology has helped us take basic things and expand them in a more powerful way. Yeah. And yeah, I just remember in 83 or 84, I bought a Mac and it, and the reason why I bought it, because I was always big into the analytics of what we could do. And Microsoft had a tool called Multiplan, which became Excel. And so Multiplan was my first thing. And, and the first thing I did with an office that was in another company at that point in time, went in and we did two things. One, we could create proposals really fast because we didn't have to go back and redo the whole proposal if something was wrong. Didn't have to right. retype a 30-page government proposal. We could just go in and change a few words and reprint it. Right. But the financial benefit, I could go in with these spreadsheets and actually predict what my costs were going to be before corporate yes. got back to me 60 days later to tell me what they right. were. Yes. And, and we have those yeah. tools today, and I still find it interesting. So many companies don't use those tools that are available to them. It's more of a, to your point, I get the reports, I don't know how to read them, or they don't tell me what I need to know. Exactly. And, and we do a lot of what I would call executive summaries of information. We have tremendous amount of data now, but we still don't have a lot of information. That's what we call actionable intelligence. So we spend a lot of time looking at the data, summarizing it and saying, okay, here are the three things this data is telling me. And I don't have to drill down to every detail. Now, if there's a problem, we spot a problem, 
okay, then we need to drill down. But many times at the upper level, we can say, okay, we're directionally correct on five areas. One is slipping. So let's go investigate that one. And a lot of COOs, CFOs, they need that high-level information that tells them if the ship is on course. But we tend to flood people with data that they can't interpret. I've got a CEO I'm working with now, and, and she says, don't ever give me a spreadsheet. I just want a chart. Okay, now that's a little extreme. But her point is, what she's really saying is, I need something I can act on. I don't need data. I need information. And then if I have information, what are my options? What do I need to do? And that, That's where I work with a lot of financial people saying, you're great at gathering the data. You're great at reporting it. But what's the actionable part to this? That's what your CEO, COO needs to know because they don't have time to figure all this out. That's why they hired you. And so if you can convert data to information, to action plans, now you're valuable. You're very valuable at that point. And that's what I try to do is help people increase their value. That's really important. And two parts of that, increasing their value. But this other element of a lot of reasons why business owners, executives have a difficult making difficult time making decisions is this element of just being inundated with too much information, being able right. to cut through the noise to what is really critical. And uh, that's a really strong point. Is, is that a, how common is that for when you see that? Just too I much information or too much or not enough information? I think most companies that I see have too much data and not enough information. Every, almost every client I have tries to, one of their issues is understanding the information that they have and what do they do with it. Nobody I've seen has a lack of data. Now, some of the data is wrong. Some of the data is not formatted where you can understand it easy. So we have to clean up some of that. But most people don't know, once I have information, what do I now do about it? What's the action plan? What's the action step? How do I change this for next month or next quarter? So that's a bridge uh, that we help make externally and try to teach the people internally how to do that on their own. And we're actually doing that with a couple of clients right now, just to take all this massive data that we can sort very quickly, but what does it mean at the end of the day? What are the two or three nuggets of information that I can gain and I can action that? For instance, We've worked with a company right now on customer profitability, and that's another big metric that, that I like. What are we making on each customer? Because not every product or service that we sell to a customer is high margin. Some of them are low margin. Some of them have to be because of the competitive nature in the marketplace. But are we making money on that customer? And if we're not, it's probably our fault. We're either providing the wrong service, we're providing it at the wrong price, it's something they don't need or they don't value in their minds. So how can we supplement what we're doing so that it's more valuable to them? So once we give that information to the sales and marketing people and start opening up that discussion, you know, they're like, I never realized that those products weren't making money. They don't even really need those. Let's just cut that out. Let's replace that with something else that we think is more valuable. Now we've got a more profitable package and a happier customer. So that kind of information that turns to action, that's what we look to try to do. That, that's the critical thinking process. And, and as, as a business owner myself and as, you know, the business owners that I've worked with, 
You hit on a key point there, is just asking that question, what is the actionable information that I need to run my business? And starting with that point, and again, oftentimes, business owners have done a great job building their businesses, but that one element of just trying to figure out what's really essential as a starting point. The other stuff can be important too, but what's really essential and urgent? Yes. And we have to look, we have to look internally and say, okay, what, what do we need to do different? And I work with a lot of C-level executives because I was working for a Dover Corporation subsidiary, Dover being a Fortune, 5, a Fortune 100 company, Fortune 50 at one time, I think. We had one of their senior vice presidents come visit us and he made this statement. He said, when a company's in trouble, he said, it's rarely the janitor's fault. He says, I really haven't had to terminate any janitors. He said, but I've terminated some CEOs because they didn't recognize what was important in that business. He says, so trouble starts at the top. So my takeaway from that is I need to make sure that I'm doing the right things for the employees, for the company, for the customers, for the vendors, and where am I being an inhibiting factor in any of that? And CFOs, CFOs, we're all human. We all have biases. We all have blinders on to things. But when the people at the top can open their eyes and look at the whole organization and take and say, I've done a few things wrong. I've made some mistakes. I need to correct those. The whole organization looks at that and say, wow, the people at the top are recognizing they need to do some things different. Maybe I need to as well. And we find that's a real eye-opener when when the top is reflective about themselves and the business and making changes. That's a big signal to the organization and the organizations now get a sense of urgency and move forward much quicker. Yeah, I, that's such a, a, an important piece, the reflective. One of my, I will say my first, really my first business boss that I had, because I, I worked for a couple other people in whatever, whatever job I had, but the first business where I was in management and somebody managed me, he, he made this comment, you need to sit down on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. And he called it, review what's going on. So today, I'm just reviewing what's happening today. Reflect on that and say, what can I learn from this? Uh, What could I have done better? What could I have not done at all and and still been okay? Or what did I need to do that I didn't do? So that reflection on that. And then how are you going to refine that for tomorrow? How are you going to be better? And one of the greatest lessons and one of the things that when I've gotten away from that, I have tough times follow, but it is that, you know, reflection, I think, is a key piece of any company being successful. And so it happens not only at the CEO level, but with the executive team and how they do their planning, looking at what has worked, what hasn't worked, what their clients are telling them, what their people are telling them. It's having an open ear and open mind to what what the world is about. Yes, and, and one of the ways we try to introduce that to companies is we have a concept called zero-based budgeting. And uh, people get scared about budget because they think it's really detailed and it's all this. We say a budget's a plan. The plans change. But we have to start with a plan. If we don't have a plan, we don't know where we're going. But zero-based means we start with a clean sheet of paper. We try to justify everything we're doing. And when you do that from the ground up, people say, we're spending this, but we don't get anything for that. Why are we doing that? We could take that money and deploy it over here and get a bigger impact. And so we get our sales and marketing people, we get our engineering people, we get our manufacturing people involved in that process. 
You'd be surprised how many things come out positive when you look at a, the business from a 360 standpoint from a clean sheet of paper approach. And, and we don't do that every year, but that's every two or three year cycle that you go through. We found that to be pretty effective. I've got a client getting ready to go through it. They're going to go through it this fall for next year. We tried to get them to do it last year, and they said, our time frame so compressed, but we have we have aggressive growth plans. I said, the more aggressive your growth plans, the more you need to do this. So they've agreed to do that this fall and go through that process. We're going to lead them through it. And I think there'll be some real eye-openers, some real aha moments by their senior staff when they start sitting down and thinking a clean sheet approach to how we run the business. I've, I've heard you use this term before, from survive to thrive. And as we close up this conversation, and we'll, we're going to have more what advice, you know, or maybe a nugget you could share with a, like you said, a CEO family business owner who out there today is surviving and they really, they have this mindset that they want to move to thrive. What's, what's maybe some of the questions that they might want to be asking themselves? Sure. I think the first thing they need to ask do they clearly know where they want to go and why they want to get there? It's not growth for growth's sake. It's growth because we really believe in our product or service. We believe it's valuable to the community, to the general population, to the business world. And how do we best deliver that? And I think it's listening to your senior staff. And to some extent throughout, we advise people to do all hands on deck meetings and just say, here's our vision. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. It gives people a sense of family, a sense of belonging, that they're in on it too. They're not just being told what to do, that they understand. So I think I would tell them, solicit help from all corners of the business. Your senior staff may have deeper knowledge in some areas, but don't be confined by your senior staff. Talk to all of your employees up and down the line. They all have good ideas. And we found that you have more good ideas than you can execute. So you have to pick the ones that are most productive at the time but some ideas come up, you may implement two or three years from now. But I think it's soliciting all that, trying to trying to boil that down, and then clearly communicating where you want to go. And be flexible. Because where you want to go might be the wrong place. Your staff may have a better idea than you do, and you have to be willing to say, we know that's a better idea, that's a better approach. Everybody has different perspectives on the business. At the end of the day, the owner or the CEO has to make the decision but it's not always their idea. It's not always that they've got the only thought. And so sometimes we have to get out of the way of our own business. I've, I've got a client right now, CEO's a great visionary, but she likes to dabble in the day-to-day -day where she's not good. She's got a senior staff who gets her vision, and now she's starting to get in the way of the vision that she put out because she wants to execute it, not them. And she's better at vision. They're better at execution. So knowing the expression, stay in your lane, Sometimes the CEO and the owners have to stay in their lane because they provide value at, at one part of the business. Other people provide more value at other parts of the business. And once we understand that dynamic, we can grow profitably pretty quickly. Yeah, that's, that goes back to right seats, people yes. in the right seats, doing the right things. And, yes. and that, that's part of that reflective piece is recognizing whatever role you're in, recognizing and reflecting how do I contribute the most value and what am I best at doing? Because sometimes there's a conflict of what I think is the best value 
and what yes. I'm best at. And so how do we, we need to step back and reflect to find that so we can, we can be the best contributors and, and ultimately enjoy what we do better. So. Exactly. And even in my business, even though we only have a few people, I'm already learning the more that I can let them do and get out of their way, the faster our business grows. Because ultimately, what I want to do is sustain my business beyond me. I don't want it to be just about me. I want it, Now, I've pivoted and said I want it to be about them. They're the future. I'm trying to make the bridge to the future to help them get where they need to be so they can be successful and they can enjoy their careers as much as I've enjoyed mine. And so I'm in that position now. And that's a really fun position to be in, to bring on younger people and see them grow and see the excitement in their eyes. And they said, well, a year ago, I didn't know I could do this. And now you've helped me do it. And I can go on my own and do these things. That's pretty exciting for me. Yeah. And I find it interesting because you've decided a long time ago to focus on family businesses. And you now have family. You have your nephew. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Your nephew's now involved with the business. And it's those same things that you're going through that you see other companies go through. So I just, I thought that was a really interesting piece to have this happen after you've had this focus for such a long time. And I get that because I have my daughter working with me now, which is right. fantastic. Just absolutely That's love a big that. Thrill. Yes, That's it is. A big thrill. And, and yeah. to your, and to your point, she brings a perspective and ideas and thoughts and, and not my biases to it, which is yes. very refreshing. Yes, and I have found that one of my values is being able to listen, and I have to have a compelling reason to say no. My default answer to new ideas is now yes, unless it's just something that is, and I've not had this happen, but it would have to be something so over the top, there's no way I could agree with it. But 99 times out of 100, I say yes to the new ideas. Maybe I'll modify it, maybe just a little to keep it in the lane. But my default answer is yes, because I want him and the others that are working with us that we're becoming our own family business. Not all of us are related, but it's still like a family business. Uh, And I want them to enjoy work and business as much as I have. So I try to say yes every time. That's a great way to to end this conversation, Bob, because, again, you and I could talk for days, not just hours, but for, for days. days. Yeah, that's, right. that's exactly. Right. <laughs> we have, yeah, and we have. So again, thank you. Greatly appreciate you being on this this podcast. Hope it helps someone out there as they're thinking through some things. And sure. how do people get in contact with you? Sure, I've got a website, robertlweb.com, and they can go there. They can call me. They can text me. All the information's there. I'm based in Knoxville, but travel say travel the world, travel the U.S., certainly. I haven't traveled the world since COVID, but I've been traveling the U.S. and love to meet people, talk to people, find out how, if we can help them. And if we can't, we tell them that. Bob, again, thank you. 